the expectation for the current standards for surgeons performing urethral lysis is absent. Welcome to Mig's Front Page, the official podcast for the Journal of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery. Listen in as we discuss the latest and greatest JMIG articles focusing on the cutting-edge research in the field of gynecologic surgery. I'm your host, Peter Movilla, coming to you from the University of Kentucky College of Medicine. Today we'll be discussing the paper entitled, Redefining Urethrolysis to Mirror the Skills of Modern Gynecologists. We're fortunate to have with us today, first author, Dr. Matthew Lenardi, Assistant Professor of Advanced Gynecologic Surgery and Sonologist at the Endometriosis Clinic at McMaster University Medical Center in Hamilton, Canada. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Peter. It's a great honor to be invited to this uh, JMake podcast. Uh, as you may know, I'm a huge fan of social media. And so being a, a part of this and getting to further spread the message of this work is a really wonderful opportunity. So thank you. Well, definitely. I've seen all your Twitter posts and a lot of your uh, writings and papers. So I'm honored to have you here. So just as we jump into this podcast, my first question is, what was your motivation for writing this perspective piece for JMake? So... Yeah, as you mentioned, this was a perspective, and uh, this came about uh, over many conversations that I had with Professor George Condis uh, that stemmed from seeing innumerable operative reports that said things like uh, pelvic side wall endometriosis was identified but left untouched due to the proximity of the ureter, or words that were like, the surgery was too risky to complete. Uh, because the ureter was too close. And so we started to wonder whether the surgeons who were doing these surgeries actually had the skill to do the necessary surgery, that is excision of endometriosis, or at the very least ablation of endometriosis. And if they didn't, because the ureter was problematic, then maybe the problem is the lack of training in identifying the ureter and or performing a ureterolysis. So I think that there's a clear discrepancy between the expectations of OBGYN graduates regarding what surgeries they should do and their skill level, which equates to what they actually can do. And I don't think that there is any sinister uh, or attempts to do harm, but ultimately I think harm is the outcome when you do have an abandoned surgery or an incomplete surgery when it comes to endometriosis. That's a really good uh, initiative for writing this perspective, then. Well, I have a few questions I'd like to ask you uh, just regarding kind of some of your opinions on this topic. What are the current standards that you know about for surgical training that's required for graduating OBGYN residents and surgeons in terms of uterolysis? So my perspective is a very Canadian perspective <laughs> and now a very Australian perspective. I did my residency at the University of Toronto, graduated, and then moved to Sydney, Australia to do my fellowship in minimally invasive surgery and uh, gynecological ultrasound. So I have a really good understanding of what the training is like there being on the ground. But in doing this perspective piece, I really made an attempt to also understand the American training system by reading the CREOG guidelines. And so I would say that across Canada, the United States and Australia, New Zealand, the expectation for the current standards for surgeons performing urethralysis is absent. It's really quite upsetting and quite shocking that none of these guidelines that determine what graduating residents should be able to do even talk about urethralysis. 
And so, again, going back to the idea that we expect graduating OBGYNs to be performing surgery for endometriosis, maybe not severe endometriosis, but minimal to mild endometriosis, and yet there's no skill level required for identifying the ureter or actually dissecting the ureter. And so those two things don't really line up. No, I think you're completely correct having you know, completed both a U.S. OBGYN residency and then a fellowship. And then looking back after reading your paper, noticing that you're right, in ACGME, there's actually no requirements to kind of count those numbers. So yeah, really in, no checks and balances. In the MIGS guidelines that AEGL has assembled, there is, of course, very clear guidance that a ureterolysis is something that a graduate of FMIGS should be able to do. And that that's, of course, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure the same guideline exists for Gagnonc fellowships in US and in Canada as well. But it doesn't really make sense to me that the graduating general OBGYN guidelines, education guidelines, don't include any discussion of the ureter. And if you, you know, refer back to the paper, the first line or something, something early in my paper, I talked about how we as surgeons are always talking about the ureter. Every gynecologic surgery we're doing, we do. We say, where's the ureter? Where's the ureter? We're taught to be so scared of it, and yet we're not taught to be um, surgically skilled to handle it. You definitely make some points. Well, as maybe 10% of our population might have endometriosis at the time of surgery for other things, I imagine many of without fellowship training are going to encounter it. Do you have any ideas to get trainees more proficient in both retroperitoneal dissection and ureterolysis before they graduate residency? Yeah, definitely. So my short list of uh, ideas is simulation, surgical videos, uh, the OSATs. So that stands for Objective Structured Assessment of Technical Skills. And I think that uh, the new form of education that has now infiltrated Canada, CBME, Competency-Based Medical Education, also known as Competence by Design, that's a new model that I think can highlight this as a task that needs to be performed by graduation. And I also think, and this is why we wrote the article, reconsidering the nomenclature of what we do and why we do it can allow us to better uh, potentially stratify the necessary skills based on general OBGYN graduate skills versus those who perform subspecialty training in, in MIGS or in Gynion, for example. That's a perfect transition. I did want to ask you, you yeah. use the terminology basic and advanced ureterolysis, which is something I've never seen, I've never seen formalized, and I love the way you define it. So for the, the people listening, can you tell me how you describe basic versus advanced ureterolysis? For sure. First, I'm going to go back a little bit because when I was talking with Prof. Condis about ureterolysis, we actually tried to look up in the gynae literature where it is defined and where it's described, you know, in the actual technique and there's not really very much at all we sort of understand that ureterolysis means dissecting the ureter from essentially the pelvic brim to the ureteric tunnel and so we thought if this is what people expect as a ureterolysis and we know that it takes a lot of surgical training to be able to comfortably do that particularly in the presence of disease you know, maybe not all graduating OBGYNs are going to reach that level of competence. So this is where we thought if we stratify into basic and advanced, we might be able to make this more of an achievable learning objective. 
in our view, and this is something that is not set in stone at all, basic means identifying the ureter by simply elevating the peritoneum and making a small incision in the peritoneum to visualize it. It can be in the setting of disease, but primarily it's going to be in the setting, well, probably more so minimal disease. If you have, again, pelvic sidewall endometriosis, or if you have a larger uterus where you simply want to identify the course of the ureter. There's no intention with a basic ureterolysis to really truly do the full pelvic brim to ureteric tunnel dissection. Advanced ureterolysis is exactly that, the full dissection, and it is associated with pathology. So ureteral endometriosis, a broad ligament fibroid, a cervical fibroid, or a, you know, a big adenomyotic wide uterus where you actually have to follow the entire course of the ureter. That's what we would define as the advanced form. Most eloquently put. <laughs> and who do you believe should perform basic versus advanced urolysis? And when do you think it's reasonable to request urology for assistance? This is the most controversial question. And uh, <laughs> I <it's>, apologize. <laughs> if anybody has uh, been watching the, the Twitter sphere uh, when this article was posted, there's a lot of discussion around why limit the surgical skill level of uh, graduating OBGYN to simply a basic ureterolysis and not a full advanced ureterolysis. So my perspective piece essentially said basic ureterolysis should be taught to all graduating OBGYNs and advanced ureterolysis should be taught to all graduates of subspecialty training. It would, of course, never be a bad thing for a graduating OBGYN from their residency to do an advanced ureterolysis, but it may not be within every residency program's capacity to actually teach that. And there may be difference in skill with respect to a laparotomy versus a laparoscopy as well that needs to be incorporated into that. So I think right now, if we're trying to improve gynecologic surgical skill for graduating OBGYNs, the first step would be to say, let's make sure everybody can perform a basic ureterolysis, right? Because that doesn't exist in our education guidelines. That would be, I think, the, the first step to do. And then if that becomes achievable, then we can, I think, consider making advancements in that education to encourage more and more people to perform advanced ureterolysis. That might be possible as the specialty evolves. You know, there's more discussion these days about high volume surgeons. So that's a whole controversial topic in and of itself, but there is going to be evolution in our surgical specialty. We're also moving much more to an overall minimally invasive surgical approach uh, compared to his history. And so I think we got to start somewhere, but we have to be open-minded to uh, evolving. Now, to answer your second question, when do you believe it is reasonable to request urology assistance? I think that asking for help is never a bad idea if you need help. Always call upon your friends when you need a friend in the room, right? But I also don't want us as gynecologists to continue relying on urology at our beck and call for intraoperative consultations. I know that urologists don't particularly like that. I mean, I don't think anybody likes to be called into a surgery where you haven't met the patient and you don't really have the 
preparedness. You know, as surgeons, preparedness is an essential, essential skill. And so being called into any OR and being set, being told, you know, I need you to help me with this. It's not a great feeling. So if we can start to predict when advanced urologic disease is present and advanced urological procedures are necessary, and if you don't have the skills, then you can incorporate urology preoperatively, have the patient see the surgeon, the urologic surgeon in a preoperative consultation, they can have a much more advanced conversation than we certainly can about the urologic system. They can integrate imaging tests that might be necessary that again, we may not have the the wherewithal to do. I think this principle of increasing our preparedness using imaging is extrapolatable. Is that a word? Probably. Maybe. (laughs) you understand uh to our colorectal surgery intraoperative consultations as well like if you have an incidental obliteration of your pouch douglas which is a time when often a ureterolysis is necessary calling in your colorectal surgeon who's on call who might not be in the same hospital might have their own or that day is not going to result in the ideal patient care so we have to start to utilize imaging to predict advanced ureterolysis And I think that there are ways. So, for example, if you were to identify uterosacral ligament endometriosis, you can evaluate the infiltration into the parametrium using imaging. The parametrium, of course, is where the ureter is living. And so you can understand the proximity of disease to the ureter. You can absolutely visualize hydroureter on a transvaginal ultrasound. Of course, you can also visualize it on a transabdominal ultrasound and other imaging modalities. So when you see these things preoperatively, there's a pretty much 100% guarantee you're going to be doing a ureterolysis in those surgeries. If you identify obliteration of the pouch Douglas, ureterolysis, going to be necessary. If you identify pelvic sidewall adhesions between the ovary and the sidewall or the ovary and the uterosacral ligament, often where there is a source of uterosacral disease or ovarian endometriomas, that's a likely scenario where ureterolysis is going to be necessary to facilitate, again, complete excision of the disease. So imaging is going to be key to preparedness, I think. I think you make a perfect point there. And I think that definitely was going to be my next question, which we answered perfectly. It's how do you predict this thing, but imaging is definitely the correct uh, answer. And this is going to be another topic I think I might have you on uh, in a future podcast discussing appropriate um, ultrasound, MRI, and preoperative imaging and consultation uh, for patients with potential severe disease. As long as you schedule that podcast for four hours. <laughs> it's going to be a long conversation for sure. Good editing skills. <laughs> I know. I, yeah, um, sorry that I uh, might have jumped ahead to, to... No, I love it. it. It's a perfect transition because it's true. Um, there are things that you see preoperatively on examination, um, on ultrasound. Sometimes for endometriosis specifically, we get MRIs as well to look at the posterior cortical sac for colorectal disease. So why aren't we thinking also about urologic disease? Yeah. Um, and then that definitely can help triage who you think would be the most appropriate surgeon so we don't have to you know, necessarily intraoperatively I decide to cancel the case because of concerns for skill level or try to find somebody who may not be available to, to help in that case. So I think you said it beautifully. And one I of the think, things that uh, I've encountered is that urologists, I'm not sure if this is necessarily applicable outside of Australia, whereas where I mostly encountered urologists, is that they're exceptional on the robot. 
but they're not as well trained laparoscopically. So we do most of our surgery laparoscopically. Uh, although I know that um, there are more American gynecologists who are using the robot than in Canada, mostly due to differences in our funding system. But if we start a case laparoscopically and now in Canada and I need to bring the urologist in and we don't have a robot, again, intraoperatively is not the, be, is not the time to be sorting out these dilemmas, right? Maybe if I don't have access to a robot and I know that there's a robot at the hospital in the next city, you know, maybe I have to relinquish this patient and say, you go to see this MIGS person in the next city who operates on the robot and they bring in their urologist who also operates on the robot. And so, you know, I think that um, we just have to, we just have to think about these things to minimize, minimize the unfortunate events that are still happening to our patients. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I just want to say thank you again for writing this perspective piece, bring up this important topic uh, for our social media platform, for our readers to, you know, get this conversation started. Because that's the only way our field is going to get better if we start talking about potentially some of our weaknesses. Thank you again yeah. for your time. Yeah, thanks so much again, Peter. And uh, I look forward to coming back another another uh, another chat. If you keep writing, I'll keep calling you. Sounds like a plan. Thank you. I'm Peter Movilla, and thank you again for joining us on Mix Front Page, the official JMIG podcast. Make sure to check out the full article from today's podcast at jmig.org. Till next time, keep on reading.